welcome to Out with Susie Ruffle, a podcast about coming out, being out, and finding your place in the world. This is the first episode. Hello, I'm Susie. Uh, if you're not aware of me, I'm mainly a stand-up comedian, but I'm also a writer, an actor, and a podcaster. I'm wondering where you're listening to this. You might be on a walk, or you might be at home. It is a very strange time uh, in the UK at the moment. Well, across the whole globe. We're currently in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. And, well, first of all, I hope that you're doing well. I wondered whether to put out the podcast right now. It feels like a strange time to launch a new podcast. But then I thought, maybe you're looking for something that's a little bit of light in the shade. Maybe you're looking for a little bit of escapism for an hour. And maybe this podcast can be that for you. I've been working on this show for the last few months. I've read a number of books, I've been researching, and I've been interviewing a collection of brilliant, intelligent, inspiring guests who all happen to be part of the LGBT plus community. I've created this podcast because it's something that I wish existed. I wish it existed when I was coming out and when I was realizing that I was different. This podcast isn't just for people that have just come out. It's also not just for people that are part of the LGBT plus community. I think this podcast is for anyone, for anyone that's got an interest in people. And I mean, I think, I hope that's a lot of us. The first episode is with Oscar winner, Dustin Lance Black. I went to Dustin's house a few weeks ago before all of this started and uh, I had a chat to him in his very cool London pad. Uh, people often say that you shouldn't meet, I don't know, heroes or people that really inspire you in case, in case they let you down. Let me tell you, meeting Dustin was an absolute joy. I've, I'm so passionate about the work that he creates. I've been a huge fan of his writing and I'm also, I'm so inspired by his work within activism. It was just an absolute joy to spend an hour with him. So I hope you enjoy it. Please listen to the end of the podcast as well, because I'll be showing you ways that you can get in touch with me and uh, maybe share your story. You can do this all anonymously, but we'll get to that at the end of the podcast. But for now, here's a conversation with me and the brilliant Dustin Lance Black. I'm over the moon, actually, to say that I'm currently sat opposite a hero of mine, and that's a very exciting way to start an episode. Uh, Dustin Lance Black, you're an, an Oscar winner, screenwriter, author, activist, husband and dad. Uh, we're currently in your son's nursery. We are. It's you, adorable. And you have me blushing. That's so uh, sweet. Well, it's, I'm very excited to interview you. I'm literally over the moon about it. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. I, I'm tired, I have to say. I'm not going to lie. You have a, you have a two-year-old? I have you're tired. nearly, nearly two, and I think he started his terrible twos early. <laughs> Sure. And, uh, so he didn't get much sleep last night, which, which means, means I, I went back uh, over our sort of little monitor thing. I got about 45 minutes of sleep last night. So re it's like truth serum. So ask away. <laughs> Great. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Well, I think it's quite fun to start at the beginning. In the words of Sound of Music, it's a good place to start. Now, mm -hmm. um, what were you like? I know that you were born into a Mormon family. Yeah. Um, and what were you like as a child? Um, I was very, very shy, mm. and that only grew worse once I realized how different I was mm -hmm. and that I was in uh, places, whether that be Texas, growing up in the military, or the Mormon church, mm. where I understood the difference was not something to be you know, celebrated. You weren't waving your freaky flag around saying, this is who I am, uh, unless you wanted to get a, a beating. 
And so once I realized I was gay, which happened very early on. I know. I, so I've, I was saying to you, I've just finished Mama's Boy, which I loved. You realized you were gay when you were quite young, didn't you? I have no idea when people realize they're gay. For no, me... No, it's different for everyone, I guess. It, it was like a, a crush thing. So when, sure. when did kids start having crushes? For me, it was six years old. Yeah. I don't know if that's early or what. I think what happened, if I had to guess, it's because I already knew what the word meant. Right, okay. Because I grew up uh, in the environment I did. I had heard a lot of words for those feelings I was having for that kid down the block. Yeah. And so... I also knew it was not a good thing. Um, I hear often, particularly people in a generation just older than mine, mm-hmm. that when they first started having those feelings, they thought they were the only one in the world who had, you know, same gender attraction or crushes. And um, I didn't, I, I knew better. Because you knew, well, these people exist, but yeah. also fear them. Yeah, I mean, it was really, it was bad news. This is also, you know, I, I've got a few years on me now and and this was back when it was still illegal in texas yeah. to be gay well, i watched your oxford union address guys you've done some homework you know all about me yeah i do <laughs> this, is, this is terrifying but in that you were, you talked a little bit about anita bryan yeah sure and for the listeners that are not from the states from the uk sort of a similar thing like what was happening with section 28 here right yes. it was she was a tv she was a big music uh, star. And right. She was a okay. star. And, uh, and like she, a beauty queen? She, she was a, a failed beauty queen. <laughs> right. She's still around. I shouldn't say was. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. She is. Um, and uh, she came in runner up to the Miss America pageant. She had some hits as a musician, but nothing massive. She did pretty darn well and then became the, the spokesperson for Florida Orange Juice singing jingles. And I think she just always believed there was something more for her. And then between her and her husband, they decided that calling would be to defeat any legal protections for gay people. I think it was a, you know, now that seems like a horrible thing to do at the time. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter whether you were, you know, liberal or conservative, red or blue. It was very popular to attack gay people. Sure. So she was winning. And she was being seen as like, you know, saving children from... It's the oldest trick in the political book is if you you figure out how this issue might somehow hurt children. And I got to tell you, as a parent, I'll tune in. Sure. Doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you, but I'm going to take a listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so they, she claimed that uh, gay people somehow harmed children, though all of the evidence spoke to the contrary. Of course. And, and eventually that's what brought her down, was the evidence overwhelmingly proved that uh, harm to children was mostly caused by heterosexual people. Yeah. And so she started to lose, thank goodness. But... At the point at which she started to lose and the conversation started to change, I already was suffering under the atmosphere she'd helped create. Of course, and it's not like her losing would then mean that the next day everything's sort of bright and roses. It takes a long time for that, like the internalised shame, if nothing else, of just feeling like that about yourself. Um, So then you go to sort of high school, you call it. States, yeah, we call it high school. Yeah, you call it high school because yeah. that's where you get high. And um, I wish I. Had. <laughs> <laughs> and so you no. were you were in the Mormon Church, like I don't want to say um, like the Book of Mormon, but I mean you were doing the, the white shirts and the ties and the elder. Well, you've been elder black. So I never went on a mission right, because okay. we left the church before I turned eighteen. Yeah, yeah, just okay. before. So I'd saved my entire youth to go on a mission because that's what you're supposed to do for yep. two years on the other side of high school, but I definitely was devout. Mm-hmm. And my mom was devout. My brothers were devout. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was fun. Yeah, that's the thing. And that's the thing that really shines out in your book is that 
you know, you kind of imagine, oh, this must have been really tough being in this church. But actually, it sounded like you had lots of friends there and it wasn't, it, it seemed like, and I can certainly feel similar to this, you were sort of disappointed in yourself that you were gay because it meant that you didn't get all of this stuff that all your friends yeah. were getting. That was what was so terrifying. And we were in Texas, so we weren't even in the heart of Mormondom, which is yeah, like Utah, Utah mm. Salt Lake City. But still, there were enough, because it was a military town, and, and Mormons do tend to want to serve the country. And um, there were enough that the Mormon church was able to create this really insular sort of pocket. And we never saw much outside of it, which also meant you're never questioning the faith itself. You're never questioning sure. the tenets of the faith. So I didn't have anyone offering a contrary opinion to what the prophet of the church was saying at the time, which was that homosexuality was akin to murder. That's what I heard at six years old. I knew I was down there with murderers and that my fate in the afterlife would reflect that. And and yes, I loved my church. It was fun. I mean, Sunday services were a little dull, but once you got into the primary school or the Boy Scouts, which was supported yeah. by the church until recently, or all of the cookouts and the and the banquets and the dances and the plays and the they really made it something that you wanted to be a part of. I always felt at home, and even when I was shy, people took really good care of me. Um, and my mom, who was paralyzed. Yeah. And I have to say the being inside the Mormon church was one of the few places my mom could walk around on her crutches with her scoliosis which made her look very very different. Hmm. Um and people treated her as if there was nothing different about her. So it was a really great safe place that I knew I didn't actually belong inside of and I had no alternative to. And frankly, it wasn't being gay that finally got me to leave it. It was watching how they eventually treated my mother. That yeah. got me to start asking questions. Yeah, because your family then moved, didn't you? So your mum fell in love with a very handsome soldier? So my father had abandoned us. Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sure my biological father married my mom to get a draft deferment from Vietnam. Yeah. So once that threat was over, he was gone. Mm -hmm. Then, in order to get to the celestial kingdom, the highest level of the Mormon afterlife, uh, you have to be married. And they considered her unmarriable. So they hooked her up with another guy in the church who also was considered unmarriable. We didn't know why. I didn't find him, you know, to be terrifically handsome. Um, he was a bit odd. He smelled funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what really, what ended up happening is within, I think, literally a week after them being sealed, uh, married in a temple, he became incredibly violent. Yeah. And he turned it mostly toward me. Yeah. I think my big brother was, was really tough and older. Mm-hmm. And could have kicked his ass. And my little brother was only two. Yeah. Uh, or three, something like that. Uh, I was the right age to be beaten. And when my mother intervened, he turned his violence toward her. And when my mother called the church asking them for help, because as Mormons, we don't turn to the state. You turn no. to the church. Yeah. And that's when I first heard some things that didn't compute, which was... They were telling my mom that she had to create an environment of, in, in the home that suited him. And that somehow by not creating something that suited him, she was worthy of that violence. I mean, that's the misogyny of the Mormon church. It's homophobic, right. but I think, and, and that is horrible, but its treatment of women is, Awful. still goes on today. And it is terrible. And I mean, in this life and beyond, I, I don't think, listen, it's, it's one of the cornerstones of my belief system, which is that gender ought not ever determine destiny. 
just shouldn't. It doesn't make any good sense. Absolutely. And that is the opposite view that the church holds. If you're a man, you can get the priesthood. Yeah. You will eventually have, you know, your own planet in the afterlife. You can populate. Yep. If you're a woman, you are supposed to have children and raise children in this life and beyond. Period. That's it. And that any kind of violence like that is at least initially excused. Yeah. And so I that's when I started to say, bloody my nose, black in my eyes, but don't come for my mom. Yeah. And in my opinion, my stepfather was coming for my mom with license from the Mormon church. And that's when I started to check it out. Yeah. And thankfully, it's also when that stepfather got orders to ship off yeah. to uh, a base in Seoul, Korea with the Air Force. And my mom met this very hot. <laughs> I love how you describe him in the book. That you say you and your mom have the same taste. Well, I remember when he came to the door for the first time and I was like, holy smokes. <laughs> and how old would you have been? I would, I would have been like 12 or 13 and he would have been 20. Right. So I was closer in age to him than my mom was. Um, Fair you know, play to your mom. There was quite an age difference. Seems that runs in the family. Um, but he had a thing for paralyzed older women with three kids. God bless him. God bless him. And and he uh, had orders to ship off to California. And instead of just saying, well, that was fun. See ya. He proposed to my mom, which okay. meant she quickly had to come clean and say, I have a husband in South Korea yeah. and uh, I have to divorce him. And, and And she did. And we left the church and we... Went with him to California. And I got to tell you, he's not just hot. He was a hero. Yeah. He re uh, yeah you really get that in the book. He sounds yeah. like a, he a was, legend. He was there beside us till the day when yeah. I lost my mother. Yeah. And so was it when you got to California, you got into drama club and you started doing, was that before? I was into theater and drama mostly because I was following in my big brother's footsteps. Right. And so I did a little bit of that in, in Texas. Right. There wasn't a whole lot no. to be had. And then when I was in California, there was more. And there were community theaters. And, and, and then right next door, because we were in the Central Coast, was San Francisco with professional theaters. Um, and so I very quickly discovered a new family there, which felt equally familial to what I had experienced in the Mormon church but far more creative. And let me tell you, the boys wore a lot more glitter and a lot more sequins. <laughs> I, when I was reading that bit, I just, I aligned so much with it because it's, I talk about it on stage actually at the moment in my show where I say that musical theatre club was where I hid because I realised I was gay. Right. And so I went to musical theatre club because for a few hours a week I pretended to be somebody else. I didn't have many mates at school. I found it quite hard to make friends and um, I was realising that I was gay and was like, oh God, I don't want to deal with this yet. And so I just went to this club and every there was obviously guys that were very camp but had girlfriends and, <laughs> uh, and there were, you know, just people that were slight outsiders. And it's, oh, that feeling of when you feel like, oh God, I can, I can, relax just a little bit and I, I can met just my people. Be, yeah and I can just be myself for a minute and yeah. now was it there that you first heard a speech by Harvey Milk yeah it was in that time so I I, I went from like high school theaters mm -hmm. community theaters to professional theater pretty quickly so by like 15 16 I had a, a, a what do you would you call him he was like a mentor he sure. was a director and he would take on us like a little gaggle of of kids and really it was we were like apprentices and interns. We helped 
you know, I probably make theater affordable because though we enjoyed learning, I quickly realized we were making the props and painting sure. and running the crew yeah. and we weren't getting paid. Yeah. But we had, <laughs> it was a little apprenticeship. And, uh, and this, I had chosen this mentor, um, one, because he was like a renaissance theater guy. And somewhere in my experience, someone had said, that's the thing to do, learn all of it. Mm-hmm. And he, he seemed to know all of it. But number two, he wore these like shoals that wrapped around his neck. It felt like dozens of times and then draped down on the floor and like it ran behind him like a train of a wedding dress. And I thought, I think he might be in our tribe. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. And so he, I mean, you have to remember, this is in the middle of the darkest days of, of the AIDS epidemic. Of course, yeah. And we're, you know, 45 minute drive from the epicenter of where Which is San Francisco. San Francisco. In the, is that sort of the Castro area? Is right, that right? Yeah, in San Francisco. So we were we were south of that, but uh, a lot of the people who were working in our theater, you know, lived up there, worked up there, played up there. Uh, people were getting very thin and disappearing. And how did you feel? I hadn't yet connected AIDS as a threat to me yet because I wasn't uh, at all certain I would ever uh, come out. I also was like... Oh God! This I I, for me being gay, then at least in that time this changed in college, but it had nothing to do with sex, right? It just didn't. I don't know what maybe because I was Mormon, it didn't really cross my mind that much. Okay, I found boys really cute, men really cute, yeah. <laughs> handsome, and I was just very very attracted. I mean, I would fall in love. It was all about like love and attachment and attraction and I just used to like there was a girl that I used to dance with and she was this excellent dancer because I grew up doing like tap and ballet and all that jazz literally and um, there was just something about her yeah. and she ended up on the West End stage dancing really? and doing stuff but I didn't want to it wasn't like I was desperate to sleep with her or anything like that I just loved it when she talked to me it was sort of enough I was just like. Yeah. I'll just talk to you for ages. <laughs> and I I mean, same. I, But, you know, because people, uh, sex is a part of it. Of course. A great part of it and sexuality and all that. And I would figure that out. Figure that out big time. I had a lot of fun sure. later on. <laughs> later on. Um, but at that time, I, I'm with you. I remember the boy I had a huge crush on. It was more than enough for him to sit near me and for me just to look at the hair on his arms growing thicker <laughs> as we all kind of entered puberty. And that was plenty yeah. And that attention and, and yes, when they talk to you. And, oh. and like doing things like walking a funny way home in the hope that you might cut into their walk home. I remember doing stuff like that where I'd go the wrong way out of school. I no? think you, you might be a stalker. Okay, I right. Might, okay. You might, might, edit, might have to cut that You might want to cut that bit out. <laughs> yeah, you might I wouldn't go to their house, but I'd just be like, oh, I know what bus stop they go no, to. No, if I walk stop, a funny way. Stop. So that was the professor. That was not professor. That was the um, mentor who at one point, because I think we were in this kind of dark period, and it was a mix because people were starting to really come out. Yeah. Uh, you know, HIV and AIDS got a lot of people out of the closet. Sure. Got a lot of people... Some people were falling out of the closet into their graves. Mm. Uh, that activated so many of the living to start to organize mm-hmm. uh, and to work and to understand uh, in a whole new way the power of and the necessity of coming out. So there were a lot of people who were out in a new way in that area at that time. And I think they were looking for reasons to hope. And though Harvey Milk's the end of his story is not particularly hopeful. No. Everything up to that moment was incredibly hopeful. 
and certainly the way he spoke about gay people was strong mm. um, and inspiring. And I, I always say I don't know why he played it. I'd love to find him one day. I hope he's still around uh, and, and ask. I, I'm guessing someone might have said something a little homophobic because kids yeah. say things without really Absolutely, thinking. yeah. We repeat things we hear. And, and he brought in the tape and he played us the speech. And there was these cassette tapes floating around of Harvey's speeches. This one just happened to be given in San Antonio, Texas. And it would have been given when I was, uh, I guess, about four years old. So I wouldn't have heard it. I didn't get an invite. (laughs) But he gave it right there in San Antonio, Texas. And in that speech, uh, he talks about how a young kid in a place like San Antonio might open up the paper and hear that a homosexual was elected in San Francisco and that there are new options Mm-hmm. Options beyond running away from home or killing yourself or hiding. Yeah. And imagine me listening to that at whatever I was, 14, 15 years old. Um, I didn't come flying out of the closet, but I I found hope Yeah. that day. And up until that point, I had considered some dire solutions. Yeah. Um, because if you're told you'll never love. Totally. Never have a family be considered at that point a criminal, mentally ill, going to hell. What are you what are you what, what are you, are you doing? Do? Yeah, what are you doing with all this living? It's too hard. And so uh yeah, that that cassette tape <laughs> changed my life. Somewhere in Des Moines or San Antonio, there's a young gay person who all of a sudden realizes that she or he is gay, knows that if the parents find out, they'll be tossed out of the house. The classmates would taunt the child, and the Anita Bryans and John Briggs are doing their bit on TV, and that child had several options. Staying in a closet, suicide, and then one day that child might open a paper and it says homosexual elected in San Francisco, and there are two new options. The option is to go to California. Stay in San Antonio and fight. Two days after I was elected, I got a phone call, and the voice was quite young. It was from Altoona, Pennsylvania. And the person said, thanks. And you've got to elect gay people so that that young child and the thousands upon thousands like that child know that there's hope for a better world. There's hope for a better tomorrow. Without hope, not only gays, but those blacks, and the Asians, and the disabled, and the seniors, the us's, the us's, without hope, the us's give up. I know that you cannot live on hope alone, but without it, life is not worth living. And you, and you, and you, you've got to give them hope. Thank you very much. I know that then you went to UCLA. Yes. Uh, which sounded like... Dream come true. Amazing, right? Yeah. That was a dream come true, sure. Like one of the best film schools in the country, right? And it's... I was a, a broke kid. We couldn't afford uh, to go to university. And yeah. I got into one and we couldn't afford it. And so I went to a community college and and really for the first time worked my tail off to make sure I had straight A's and, and to give myself a fighting chance of getting in. And, and I still think it's probably the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. I think they get fifteen to 30,000 applications and they take 15 
students. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know how I got so lucky, but it was a very, very lucky turn, and, uh, and I'll be eternally grateful. It might grateful. have something to do with talent, but you never know. It might, <laughs> but it was a great, you know, I mean, I, I went there wanting to be a director, and what I was stunned by was the depth of their collection of films. Mm-hmm. And they had the they they still have the film archive there, which is only rivaled by the Library of Congress in the United States and their archive. Uh, and you could go in and literally check out any film you wanted, uh, and watch it on a projector in a little room by yourself or with some friends. And and so I just would move through Francois Truffaut mm-hmm. uh, or or Federico Fellini and just watch everything, everything, everything. It was quite a dream come true. I did somewhere in that time at that archive, uh, check out uh, The Times of Harvey Milk, the documentary. And and that was a, a reminder. Sure. A little check-in, uh, which had won the Oscar in 1984. Uh, and it was a beautiful uh, documentary about Harvey. Oh, wow, I didn't even know. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, it's not... I mean, that's the sad thing, is a lot of people didn't know it existed. I mean, even by... That would have been the, the mid-'90s, and people had forgotten it. They'd forgotten Harvey. Mm-hmm. Whenever I brought his name up, unless you were a gay person of a certain age and, and really from a certain part of California, no one knew who he was. They thought I was talking about some dairy industry <laughs> character. He, like so many of our foremothers and forefathers, was lost to history, you know, covered in shame and fear. And that's where our history has been buried. Absolutely. So when you got to UCLA, was that when you sort of started finding, like some gay pals, some friends? Did you start going out? I had, I so I had made a best friend who was uh, significantly, well, it's not significantly, he was like three or four years older than me, but in high school that feels like... Uh, oh, re- that's much older. Much, much older. Plus he looked like he was in his early 40s. He actually looks younger now than he did then. He had a giant porn looking mustache and and he was this cool so this is when you were at high school in high school and he was like one of the cool guys uh, right he was like even though he was flaming this flaming latino guy with this giant porn stash my mother was like (laughs) what the hell is this when he would come picking me up on his motorcycle and i would jump on the back legs spread and wrap my arms around him and she's And he had all this giant chest hair growing out of, you know, whatever low-cut thing he was wearing. Oh, it it was as if Freddie, Latin Freddie Mercury (laughs) had picked me up (laughs) on his motorcycle with my, you know, recently Mormon mother watching on going, good Lord. And uh, we just really, really connected. And we, but, and we probably both knew why because he moved with you right and he moved with me he was the cool kid because he looked so old no one id'd him when he tried to buy liquor so he bought liquor for the whole school so no matter how queeny he was in this very conservative town all of the really hot jocks in school loved him because he bought him beer and i would tag along i was his silent strange little sidekick um, who looked, I looked like I was 12, so it was a very <laughs> strange sight. And when it was time to go off to school, I, I was one of the few who, in that area, in that town, who said, I got to get out. Mm-hmm. And I think he, f- I know he followed my lead. And we moved with, I wasn't in any school. I didn't have any money. We didn't have a job. We just moved to Los Angeles because I thought, well, you, proximity's got to help. Sure. I knew I wanted to make movies. And um, and yeah, we moved down together, and eventually, I I go into much more detail in the book, but it's yeah. I I kind of force him out of the closet, and I wasn't particularly kind with my 
reaction. I mean, it was so weird. I was young, but it was still very immature. It's like I needed to know he would be okay before I dared take a step out. Yeah. And He was your litmus paper. He was. My, my canary in a cage. I just needed to see how it went. And in fact, I went and got a girlfriend that summer in Virginia where my family was now living. And um, How did that go? Did that end well? Was that? She's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I love her to death. We were like best friends. I mean, we tried it. I'm not going to lie. I, you know, we tried it a number of times. You know, I, but I, I, I do think, poor thing. Like, I, I remember the first time she took her top off. And there were her breasts, which were gorgeous. Like, but I remember touching them. I can't believe I'm telling you this. And I, I love that you are. And then I said to her, I, I, remember I looked at her and she was like a best friend. And I said, gosh, I just imagined they'd be, you know, harder. Oh, bless her. That's not what you want to hear when you, t- when you show your no! boobs to someone. I just, I, I, I was projecting all of my like gay peck desires onto her breasts. It was really terrible, but she was incredibly patient and sweet and kind of explained things to me. <laughs> and then I, I came back from that summer and I never talked to her again, mainly because Ryan, who had been, you know, overweight, he's my my friend, yeah. uh, came back from that summer after three months of being out of the closet and he was lean and strong and tan and had tattoos down his arms and the mustache was gone and he'd shaved his head and he was hot. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this coming out thing is like a cocoon. Yeah, he's And thriving. you can emerge like a butterfly. Yeah. It was really striking. And so it didn't take me too long before I wrote a, a manifesto. Yes. Because I, I can be a little dramatic. Um, and left it for him. And that's how I came... And he was the first Uh, person you told? He was the very first person I told. And he'd be the only person I'd tell for a little while. You know, years later, uh, not that... uh, I don't think I've ever told this story. Years later, after the Oscars, Mm -hmm. and there was... You know, I gave a speech that got some attention around the the web. I finally... God, what would that be? Well over a decade later, got a message from my ex-girlfriend. And she said, oh... Now I understand why you never wrote me back. <laughs> and we've, we've had some good chats since Oh, then. that's so nice yeah, that she so, reached out. Oh, come on. She was so cool and so patient with me. And so um, then for that last year or so of, of university at UCLA, I started making up for Lost Time. For Lost Time. time. Sure, yeah. we've all been there. I mean, there's West Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, I became obsessed with West Hollywood about a decade ago because of the L word. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God. There are so many lesbians there. <laughs> I need to move to West Hollywood. I'm, I'm still yet to do it, but maybe one day. Um, can we talk about when your mum came to visit you in UCLA and all of your friends were there? And you'd, yeah. you'd had a conversation with her over Christmas, which... Didn't go well. I, I think you and I are similar in that we both love Christmas. Yeah. I, it's the best time of the year. I get excited for like the whole month. Tom still in his phone has me saved from early on. It's a Christmas tree and then it's a name and it's a Christmas tree emoji. <laughs> That's so cute. Uh, although I think he's trying to also say that I'm camp as Christmas, which is a little saying, which I, I take pride in as well. So I know a girl that no is trouble. married to a guy called Tim and he is still in her phone as Tim Tinder, <laughs> which I just love. Well, I'm Lance Christmas. So that's nice. I like that. No, we love. Uh, I mean, we were we were broke growing up, but and my mom uh, was a superhero. I'll always think of her as a superhero, and she somehow saved and saved and saved and got very creative. And we always had these 
incredibly grand Christmases. Um, there was the one in particular, uh, and it it just happened to time out with a lot of debate in America around gays in the military. Mm -hmm. And President Clinton was going to sign a bill uh, called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The gay people were furious because this meant you had to be closeted in order to stay in the military. My mom was furious because it meant they wouldn't be kicked out unless they came out. She thought that gay people should be, I guess, systematically removed. I mean, this is what she had mm. grown up sure. believing her whole life. And so she just was, she came to my room late at night in, um, in Virginia where they were living on this Christmas night. And um, she started talking about it. Like, and we talked about everything. She had no suspicion. I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> she, I mean, she should have been able to pick up how you were looking at her husband, if nothing right, else. I know. Or like the Paul Abdul poster on my wall that if you lifted it up was a collage I'd made of new kids on the block. I mean, come now. <laughs> Not Butch. The, uh, Don't worry, my mum was my mum was surprised when I came out, and I was like, I was on the football team, the hockey team. Really? I'm like, I'm literally wearing dungarees right now, mum. How are you? <laughs> How are you surprised? But. How? Um, so she was going on uh, in a passionate you know way as we do in our mm -hmm. family about how much she hated this don't ask don't tell thing because it was too inclusive and i did uh, the short version is I, I i never came out to her i never said the words i'm gay i just started to, to cry and my mom and i were incredibly close mm -hmm. so we didn't need words uh, and so she knew and it didn't go well she didn't accept me right away she um i think worried for me she blamed herself um, and she wanted to know how to fix it. All the things you don't want to hear. I mean, I, I, I wasn't, you know, uh, kicked out of the family. And she, we maintained communication, even though it was really hard. And that's often my advice to kids when coming out doesn't go well. See if you can't keep the lines of communication Yeah, open. absolutely. Yeah, even if it's just a text or just <sighs> reminding them that you're still you. They yes. just know a new thing about you. Like, I think that's often the thing. Certainly when I have sort of young LGBT plus teens getting in touch with me after shows and things, I think sometimes parents can feel like they have they don't know you anymore when in fact they you're just being that bit more honest than you've been before. And I guess reminding your parents of that. I think that's the best advice. By just, yeah, by just being there. Yeah. I think that was the thing with my mum as well, is that once she got to know some of my friends, she now knows loads of lesbians and loads of gay guys. And when I'm near Portsmouth, where she lives, I'll, you know, go with some friends and she's got to know all of them. And now we're not this idea of what these people are anymore. We're people. Yeah. We're just people with stories. And, and that's sort of what happened with your mum your mum's come to stay. She knows that you're gay. You yeah. haven't really discussed it. No. And now all of a sudden she's in a room with all of these gay guys and lesbians who yeah. assume that she's like totally cool with having a gay son. Because I was too afraid to tell them otherwise. And you're just in the corner making pasta. I was making pasta in the kitchen. And, uh, and I'm watching my mom talk to all of my, you know, gay and lesbian friends mm -hmm. and which I had a lot. Both my roommates were gay. Ryan was one mm -hmm. of them at that point. And I did it some point realized that because I chickened out and not told them uh, and not told my mom that so many of my friends were gay and lesbian now that they were assuming she was like some you know queer mother Teresa because this is re this is a long time ago this was before Ellen came out this is before Will and Grace hit the air this was yeah. like you know this is it's it's still like AIDS is absolutely deadly territory mm -hmm. no treatment um, this was not easy times and so I realized these kids are starting to tell my mom their stories because she's listening. And 
Uh, their stories, of course, include how many of them don't go home for Christmas anymore. I mean, this was uh, this still happens today, but of course, uh, you absolutely. Know, the kids kicked out of their homes. A lot of them come to California because it's warm, so you don't freeze to death. So it's one of the number one destinations for gay homeless youth on the planet yep and so uh they're sharing these stories of heartbreak now my mom is a polite southern woman she's not going to fight you to your face she's going to smile and nod she'll make you bleed once you're out of the room (laughs) you know but she smiles and she nods and she'll nod you absolutely to death and they're mistaking that as Understanding and acceptance, yeah. yeah. And so they keep going on and on and on. And I mean, and some of my friends are very, very forward. And I, I, you know, I know now in retrospect that they were not only telling her about their families and their their lives, but about their sex lives, (laughs) about the particular uh, challenges of gay sex about how women do it because I think lesbians, my mom was also, I know she looked different (laughs) from the shoulders down. Yeah. But my mom was hot in the face. Like, she didn't get that hot army soldier for nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the lesbians were showing particular attention. Um, <laughs> there's one in particular I have in mind. She had her Doc Martens on, and she was explaining to my mom, you know. How, the ins and outs, literally. Literally, yeah. How many fingers? Where do they go? The, uh, so, the, um, and so you're, like, burning red while staring at sauce. <laughs> Dying. Um, so at a certain point, though, everyone leaves, and I know I'm going to be left alone. And my dear friend Ryan and my other roommate head to their rooms. Ryan's known my mother forever, so he's like, "Whoa, don't want to be here for this." And my mom pats the um, the futon that she's sitting on, and, um, and which means, "Come sit next to me." Mm-hmm. And I go and sit next to her. And you can, you know, when you can feel the heat radiating <laughs> off of someone, I felt that, and um, and I knew I was in pretty deep trouble and uh she said um i met your friends i'll never forget all the silence in between each thing we said um and i said yeah she said and she named one in particular who she knew i had a crush on who wasn't giving me much attention and uh she said well i had i had a particular talk with him i said okay she said well i told him that the next time he takes you out uh he ought to start treating you a bit better and and maybe he even ought to pay and i just turned to her because this is not what i expected and she just had tears in her eyes i can't help but well up just thinking about it and it was her way of saying i get it i never Um. got it and she wrapped her arms around me and she held me and that hug is the first time I ever knew for certain that my mother loved me for every part of me. And it's a transformative moment uh, because it's the moment that I no longer was just moved by story, but I understood the power Mm -hmm. of story. I understood the power of stories communicated firsthand Mm -hmm. to, in this case, in one evening, dispel all of the myths, the lies, the stereotypes, about LGBTQ people she learned from the military, from the South, and the Mormon Church over decades. Gone. Just from chatting to people. Because I think the greatest lie detector on Earth is not the thing they strap onto you uh, in some jail. Mm -hmm. It's looking someone in the eye. And so I say to people nowadays, you want to change a heart, which is the path to the mind, Mm -hmm. sit down across from someone. 
Yeah. Tell a story. If you start getting into the science and the math and the politics of it all, they're just going to dig their trenches deeper and you're going to get in a fight. And it doesn't matter how much all of that is on your side. It sadly doesn't. I wish it did. But if you can tell that story while they're looking you in the eye and understand that you're telling them the truth, you can change somebody like that. And I mean, that led you directly into the kind of work you wanted to make. Yes, that has put me in a pigeonhole for a couple of decades now, (laughs) which is this idea that we've lost our foremothers and forefathers' stories. Mm -hmm. And I I think we need those stories in in desperate fashion, partly because most LGBT people are not raised by LGBT people. So our parents, bless them, no matter how loving and accepting, don't always know what we need what kind of armor we need, strength we need to survive as a, that kind of minority. Yeah, you know, other I, minorities at least have parents who say, mm-hmm. this is how you deal with a bully who's making fun of your color of your skin or the God you pray to. Mm-hmm. Um, we need our own forefathers and foremothers' stories to teach us how to be strong enough to survive. And they've been buried. Why? Because if you dared to tell their stories even 30, 40 years ago, you were naming yourself as a criminal, as mentally ill. You could be kicked out of your home and your job. In the United States, in most states, you can still lose your job in your home. It's mind-boggling. So how much courage does it take to tell our stories? Well, in some places, it takes a lot of courage. In some places... It's deadly still. Yeah, and absolutely. so, But it's absolutely necessary, and I think that some of the powers that be know that by silencing our stories, they silence us. And so I say, as loud and clear as I can, fuck you. <laughs> I'm going to tell our stories as best I can and as many as I can as long as my heart is beating. And so I know there was work in between, but can we talk about milk? Yeah, because it's yeah, like, yeah. I know that you. So you you graduated and you worked on Big Love, which was the I did Big the, Love. Yeah, I did. I did faking it. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I remember seeing Harvey Milk in the pictures in the cinema uh, before I'd come out. Wow. Yeah, and I remember it being quite emotional for me. Yeah. I it like really stuck with me for days. Oh, the thing that I didn't know when I was reading your book is that quite a few people had tried to make a film about Harvey's life yeah. before, but they'd never got anywhere. Is yeah, that right? It didn't happen. Uh, Warner Brothers had the rights to a very good book called Mayor of Castro Street, mm-hmm. written by Randy Schultz, which if you're interested in Harvey Milk, it's a great one to read. In fact, if you're interested just in the politics of that day, um, and particularly how U.S. LGBT power was won, uh, it's a great one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great reminder, because I actually think we are currently in a very troubled, divided time in the LGBTQ community which is where Harvey uh, mm-hmm. started. And there's some really interesting ways of thinking of how to fix that okay. in that book. Um, they had that book, but they, they couldn't get it made. I don't know all the reasons why. I actually tried to get the job to revive that project, and I was told they were looking for a writer who had an Academy Award uh, to take it on, which I didn't have one. But, I yeah. mean, <laughs> that was that was sweet when you got one. <laughs> It made for a good, like, Entertainment Weekly story afterwards. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I just, I think partly it was that I started from scratch. I decided to go, because I found through a friend of mine, Cleve Jones, living in Palm Springs, uh, who then introduced me to Ann Cronenberg and Jim uh, Rivaldo, who was still around. And these are people that were sort of in 
Harvey's network of yeah. people that were because what did Cleve do? Is he Cleve was one of the kids on the street in the Castro yeah. who had who had fled there to live a more open life mm-hmm. in the early seventies um, and got swept up in in Harvey's uh, political work. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was very political himself. Yeah. Uh, but became like a political protege mm-hmm. and then eventually would work with him in City Hall. Um, it was mostly kids. He was like the Pied Piper. You know, if you went yeah. into the, if you look at pictures of the Castro from that time, first of all, everyone's young and beautiful and ripped, which I said, <laughs> Cleve, could that be true? And he said, yeah, we were all kids and there were no McDonald's yet. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's what it looked like. Um, it, Sadly, and we can talk about this, it was a bit racist in the Castro, and it was segregated, men from women, like mm-hmm. I said, the women. So it's, you know, it had its problems, but it was a, a first step, <laughs> though it had it, it adopted some other problems. Um, the uh, It meant that so many of Harvey's associates were still alive, because they were only 19, 20, 21 when yeah. he started working with them. And I got to interview them all, the surviving ones. A few had been, Scott Smith, his lover, had been had died of, of AIDS, and uh, Dick Pavich, one of his political consultants, had died of AIDS. But many of them are still around, and I was able to base my script on that. They were incredibly generous and didn't charge me a dime for being depicted. I didn't have a dime to give them, and that meant I didn't have anything against it. It was just, and I wrote it for free. I didn't get paid to do it. So it was, you know, a labor of love, and you go to a studio with that. Plus, I had worked my tail off to get Gus Van Sant, Sean yeah. Penn, uh, James Franco and Emile Hirsch. So you go to a studio with that intact, and uh, and then it was almost undeniable. There was no money against this massive thing that somehow I had built just because I, I couldn't stop myself. You know, I often think back on those days in, in, in really romantic fashion and think, I, I should go back to that. I should go back to doing things for free. <laughs> it really is like it gives it a, certain, a special kind of spirit. Were you like, once that all happened, were you like, oh, well, this is going to be... Like, did you know that you had a hit on your hands? No. When you were filming? No, 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 no. You have to dial yourself back. This was 10 years ago Mm -hmm. now. And and that doesn't seem like too long a time. But the world's changed massively. No one was buying gay films. Studios weren't asking for gay characters or gay Mm -hmm. storylines. TV, it was... There were a few that had been successful, thank God, for Ellen and Will and Grace. But... But I mean, even now, there's not loads of us. Do you know what I mean? There there, there still could be more of... You know, LGBT plus stuff all over, especially in British TV. It feels really lacking. It would be great. Yeah. Now, at least, you have executives, you have places like Netflix. Yeah, absolutely. Who know they want to make sure that they're serving a diverse audience. That just wasn't a conversation. No, absolutely. And so, you know, it was not a no-brainer. There had been one big successful box office success, which was Brokeback Mountain. And so I went there first. To focus features because mm-hmm. I said they know that this isn't a dead end. Everyone mm-hmm. else thought it. Everyone else said no to it. By the way, they know this isn't a dead end, and um, and I was right. They they saw something in it and did an incredible job with it. Um, you know, I'm eternally grateful to them and Universal for believing in it from start to finish. I love the story in the book where you said about when you um, it's at the end of the movie when you do the candlelit vigil, and you said that people showed up. There were extras who had actually been there. Yeah, that must have been. Yeah. I mean, incredible. That was one of those chills moments where yeah. it was um, when we'd hoped to get a few hundred and then just yeah. replicate them in, in post. Uh, 
and it, yeah, thousands showed up. They sh they filled city blocks. It was uh, I don't know the exact count of what we got, but I believe it's around six thousand people showed up in seventies attire. I love that. Um, some young, many because the tears were genuine as they were walking. You know, were likely there for the, for the actual original march. Obviously, winning the Oscar was incredible, but it was actually what you said at the Oscars that then changed your career path for like the next five or six years? Yeah, for sure. You can't do two things terrifically well at once. I, I'm not a big believer in multitasking and, but, and certainly film and politics. Mm -hmm. When you have something as gargantuan as what I promised at the Oscars, which is marriage equality at the federal level, uh, meaning all 50 states would yep. have it, um, that's a big job. And so is making a movie. So uh, actually a political friend of mine said, who wanted to organize this case said to me, you know you can't do both. What I thought about a lot when I finished your book was how you standing at the Oscars and saying, you know, that there'll be there'll be kids watching this who have been told by their church or by their family. I thought, oh, Dustin has sort is sort of being that that voice that Harvey Milk was to him mm. to others all over America, and then that must have felt like not a weight in a bad way, but like, well, we're going to have to commit to doing this now. You know, if you're, this is my mom talking, you know, my mom had a really strong sense of justice. I think mm -hmm. some of that is because she understood what it felt like to be treated mm. because of the way you look versus who you are. Mm -hmm. And um, and she lived with that her whole life. And so she taught me, if you're on a sinking ship and you have a life raft or a life preserver, you have a responsibility to share it, to throw it as a human being. And so if I just spent, you know, between Pedro and faking it, I did all gay episodes mm -hmm. and then Milk, I studied with the people who, you know, helped in this moment of great progress for gay revolution. I had the tools. I knew what was going wrong in the gay movement. I wasn't alone, but I knew what it was. I had a responsibility to put that to use. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, that speech, I, I mean, that speech is uh, was not word for word prepared but it was definitely the night before when I was so incredibly stressed out, I would say a sentence in my head. And if it stuck, you nailed it, in a, in a way that it touched the heart of that six-year-old who's mm -hmm. still in my head, he's still in me, uh, then, it, then it made it. And the Oscar goes to Dustin Lance Black for Milk. Oh my God, this was, um, this was not an easy film to make. And first off, I have to thank Cleve Jones and Ann Cronenberg and all the real life people who shared their stories with me. When I was 13 years old, my beautiful mother and my father moved me from a conservative Mormon home in San Antonio, Texas to California. And I heard the story of Harvey Milk. And it gave me hope. It gave me the hope to live my life. It gave me the hope to one day I could live my life openly is who I am and that maybe even I could fall in love and one day get married. I want to I thank my mom, uh, who has always loved me for who I am, even when there was pressure not to. But most of all, if Harvey had not been taken from us 30 years ago, I think he'd want me to say to all of the gay and lesbian kids out there tonight who have been told that they are less than by their churches or by the government, or by their families, that you are beautiful, wonderful creatures of value. 
and that no matter what anyone tells you, God does love you, and that very soon, I promise you, you will have equal rights federally across this great nation of ours. Thankfully, Sean Penn had told me you're not going to remember any of it, so <laughs> be prepared in some way because it feels like a train hits you. And so, uh, you know, I, but I made a big promise that I was going to put those lessons that I knew to use. And number one is if you believe you deserve equality, then demand all of it. Yeah. Stop asking, begging for crumbs, partial equality in one area or another demand it and if you're if you understand the history of social justice fights you know in america you have to take it to the federal government not a state government so you take it to a state government well you might win in one state but then as soon as you drive across that border to another state you lose all your rights so this crazy idea that a few of us <laughs> felt we could pull off that matched up with what I had learned as a Southern Texas boy, which is fight that bully even if you think you're going to lose because you know you deserve respect. Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, the bully was homophobia and the bully were the federal laws that weren't letting us get married uh, to the person we love no matter where we lived. And so I worked with that small group and it was a small group. We're talking five, six people um, to find our plaintiffs and to sue the state of California in federal court to say that Proposition 8, which had just taken marriage away, was unconstitutional. And we caught holy hell from the gay movement. Yeah, that was the thing that I was surprised to, to read about. Well, not and not from conservatives. I mean, the movement was fractured. Mm -hmm. I mean, like in some ways we are at the moment. It, it, it happens often mm -hmm. and it's it, it makes complete sense and it's going to continue to happen and that's okay. It's because the LGBT community is not one thing. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly diverse. And so we don't just have our otherness in our queerness. We also probably have our otherness in the color of our skin, mm -hmm. in our religion, where we live. Uh, you know, I, there's so many other, so many ways that we're very, very different. And then we sometimes start to tribalize within ourselves. And it is absolutely true that some uh, groups in the LGBTQ family are treated far worse than others. I, as a white gay man, probably have the most privilege of any group within it. Others, you know, trans people of color have it far worse. Mm. That investigation of our great differences is critical. Keep doing it. It's important. It's going to guide what you need to do to finally be treated equally in society and under the law. It cannot, even though it sometimes is so difficult... It cannot divide you from the rest of your LGBTQ family. You can't let it. And if some white gay guy is strutting about like a peacock with his privilege, just turn to another one. Yeah. There are decent white gay dudes. Absolutely. Out there. And it's that coalition within the LGBT community, those bridges we have to build that are sometimes hard to build and hard to maintain because we are so different. Those are critical. And by the way, that's still not enough. On the other side of building that coalition, that only maybe gets us to 5-10% of the population. We can't win anything with that. Then, on the other side of making sure that our own family is strong, which it's not right now in the world, then we have to build coalitions with other people who have a lot more privilege than we do. And that was the thing that I found so inspiring in the book. And I thought, you know what, Suze, you need to, you need to remember this. You need to take this on. About when you were sitting down with people that you would have assumed mm -hmm. would definitely not be on the same side as you. Yeah. Like the people within the Republican Party and when you took it 
sort of federal court. Well, this is, and it's, you find ways to connect with people that aren't uh, demanding that they understand you on the, at the outset. Mm-hmm. And this is where Harvey, and it wasn't just him, but some of the people working with him at that time in the 70s really guided our work five, ten years ago as we're fighting for marriage equality, understanding that Harvey Milk didn't win his election because a bunch of gay people showed up to vote for him. Yes, they did, thankfully. But he also had organized a campaign with white, straight, union, beer, truck drivers to get all the gays in California to boycott Coors Beer until they agreed to pay a living wage, a union wage. And they won. The gays got Coors to cave. And guess what? To this day, the unions are with LGBTQ people in California and the United States. That's an incredibly unexpected coalition. Do you think Alan Baird, the head of that union, understood everything about Harvey Milk from the outset? Absolutely not. He probably thought he was a clown. Because Harvey was a bit of a clown. They probably didn't. But eventually, they built a friendship. Mm -hmm. Harvey did the same kind of outreach to the Chinese community in San Francisco because the ballots were only being printed in English. Which, of course, is keeping democracy at arm's length from an entire group. Did Harvey say, well, let's do a quid pro quo. What are you going to give me? No. You go out there and you figure out how as queer people wearing your biggest, brightest rainbow flag, put on a dress if you like it, get your sequins going and help another group be visible and do service for others. One of the stories that inspired me in that time came from Salt Lake City and they were fighting for equality Uh, protections for housing and employment in Utah, a good friend of mine was. And one of the things they organized was there's a lot of seniors living out in those communities and it snows. And so when the first snow fell, they were organized and ready with all of their Equality Utah badges on and their bright rainbow sashes and whatever it was, you know, scarves, I mean. (laughs) Uh, And they went out with shovels and started shoveling the seniors' homes. And so, of course, when they come out, there's a bunch of confused people who are seeing these kids who look like unicorns, uh, shoveling their driveways. And the question is, well, what do I owe you? What do I, how do I repay you? Thank you, this is awesome, but what? And they say, no, 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 we just need you to know there are gay people in Utah. We're your neighbors. And guess what? Utah is one of those states in the minority that has protections for housing and employment. One of the most conservative states, reddest states in America, where the Mormon church calls home has more protections than many other states because of that kind of outreach, that kind of bridge building. That's the kind of thing you got to do, people, if you want to get to a majority. First, we have to repair our own family. Mm -hmm. Then we have to understand the power, though difficult, of building bridges to other communities, unexpected allies. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get to 51% and you'll be able to win your own freedom and protections even at the ballot box. But that's the work it's going to take. I love it. I love it. I mean, I'm so inspired by you and I'm so grateful that you were willing to chat to me today. Can I just ask you one more question? Yeah, go for it. If you could, if I could give you a little telephone and you could ring Dustin back when he was maybe eight years old and feeling like such an outsider, what advice would you give him? I think I think I would I would tell him that he's more powerful than he can know uh, at, at that point. I think I want to, t- I want to tell him that cause I, I, I want to tell kids that 
mm-hmm. not just him. I think, you know, Dustin or Lance or whoever he is, he turned out all right. He got really lucky. But there's uh, a lot of kids out there right now, um, not just queer kids. There's a lot of kids out there right now who are being born into some really difficult situations, whether it's because they're just too different for their, you know, the people in their family or their society or their school. They're being bullied for this or, or for that. Uh, we live in this kind of attack culture, this kind of live Twitter, horrible assault culture. They might be suffering under that. We live in a world that has great challenges, whether it's guns in the United States, the environment everywhere, leaders right now who seem to want to build walls and isolate ourselves from others, which really speaks to a fear of difference, I think. Um, And I want to say to all those kids, you are so powerful. Don't, don't discredit yourself. If you have an idea, yeah, do a little research around it, but put it into action. Share it. Talk about it. Your ideas are valuable. They're valid. We're not going to be around, us grown-ups and adults, very much longer. We've started doing some work. You're going to have to either finish it or figure out a better way. We need your ideas. We need your innovation. Your eyes are far more open than ours can be anymore. You're seeing everything so fresh and clear. Use it. Speak it. You're powerful. Thank you so much. All right. No problem. Oh, I just find him so inspiring. What a guy. Oh, he's so great. What a lovely man. Um, I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, If you haven't seen the film Milk, I mean, go watch it tonight. You have to see it. It's such a great film. Uh, Also, Sean Penn won an Oscar for it and the clip of him getting his acceptance speech. If you like watching that sort of thing, I love watching that sort of thing. It's on YouTube. Have a look at that as well. Um, I also highly recommend Dustin's book, Mama's Boy. It is a brilliant read. Uh, One more thing before I go. I thought listeners might like to get in touch with me. I thought maybe some of you guys would like to get in touch with me and share your story. Maybe you'd like to share your coming out story or something that you've learned or something that helped you find your place in the world. And of course, you can do this anonymously if you would like to. Um, But get in touch. Let's hear some more stories. Let's hear from you. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Also, before I go, a quick shout out to my friend Faye, who put me in touch with Dustin's excellent assistant, Liam, that helped organise the whole interview. Please rate and review the podcast and tweet about it. I would love for lots of people to enjoy the podcast. That way I can carry on making them and I can do a second series. Thank you so, so much for listening. There'll be another episode out next week. Uh, But until then, bye bye. (laughs) 